we're going to read the parable of the sower in verses 1 to 9. And then we're going to read Jesus' interpretation of the parable, which happens later in the narrative in verses 18 to 23. And then next week, we will read the text that's sandwiched in between the parable and the interpretation of the parable. So it's a little bit of a different way of doing this, but I think it'll keep the discussion more focused. So let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some, seed fell, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Moving to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation Or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is perfect. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. There is no flaw or imperfection in it, for it speaks truthfully and it contains no mistakes. In fact, your word contains all things necessary for life and godliness. And yet that does not mean that it is received rightly by all of us. And so today we pray, asking for you to grant us your spirit so that we can hear you and respond rightly by repenting when you are calling us to. Lord, make us quick to hear and make your word take root Deep in our hearts, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you remember last week, we saw the confrontation between Jesus and his family, where Jesus invited us to become his family. 
in this morning's passage, Jesus leaves the house where he was teaching. He obliges his family. He does leave the house. Uh, He leaves the house that he was teaching in and he goes to sit by the sea and teach the crowds there. And and so he gets into a boat and he sits down and he, he teaches the crowd by means of a series of parables. And so for the next few weeks, as we work our way through Matthew, we're going to be dwelling not just on parables in general, but on some of the specific parables that Jesus used to teach people. Uh, a parable is a real life story, or at least it, it's a real life situation from which a moral or a spiritual truth is meant to be drawn. Uh, some of the best known parables of Jesus's are the parable of the prodigal son. Many of us are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Well, in, in chapter 13 of Matthew alone, Jesus tells Uh, depending on how you count it, seven parables. Um, And so he begins with today's parable, which is the parable of the sower, uh, or sometimes called the parable of the seeds. I would suggest the more appropriate name for this is actually the parable of the soils. This is really a passage that's about the different kinds of soil. Um, But the parable begins with these words, a sower went out to sow. Uh, A sower is somebody who plants seeds, and they they plant those seeds in the hope that those seeds will grow up into a crop, that those seeds will be harvested. Um, And you will notice where the focus of the parable is. The focus of the parable is not on the seeds. The seeds in the parable are all the same. Whatever happens in the parable that is negative, it has nothing to do with the seeds. Um, In the parable, nothing's wrong with the seeds. They're not defective seeds. They're good seeds. The seed is good. The problem is the ground. The ground in the parable is not receptive for a number of reasons. Um, By the way, this this lines up with what we know about Galilee. There is uh, the land around Galilee is rocky ground with, with clumps of nasty thistles and thorns. And yet there is also a lot of good ground for farming. Uh, Josephus was a a Jewish writer from around the first century, and and he has many good things to say about the soil in Galilee as far as agriculture goes. Just give you just a snippet to to hear what he has to say. He's talking about Galilee now, and remember, he's close to this time period when he's writing. He says, the land is everywhere so rich in soil and pasturage and produces such varieties of trees that even the most lazy are tempted by these facilities to devote themselves to agriculture. There is not a parcel of wasteland. There's another Roman scholar who's writing around the middle of the the first century BC. So maybe a hundred years before this. And and he says that normal grain in the Roman Empire produces 10 to 15 fold on average. But the area of Galilee produced grain that was a hundred fold. So Galilee is known as a very rich place for growing plants and growing food. Um, And that would have been exceptional for the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is talking the language of the people, right? He's using stories and illustrations that line up with their daily lives. Um, These are agricultural people. These are fishing people. These are people of the land. And, And he's trying to help them understand the diverse reception that the word of God gets. And he's using what they see around them to do this. But this is not a parable about the sower who goes out to sow. It leads off with him. And you're reading this story and you, you initially think, oh, I know who this story is going to be about. This is going to be about the person who's throwing out the seeds. No. 
In the parable, the problem is not with the seed. The, uh, the problem is not with the sower. The problem is with the soil. In other words, Jesus is saying, when we don't receive the word of God, the problem is our hearts. So we need to avoid getting hung up on the, on the parable itself. We need to actually see what's going on here. We need to go big picture here. The gospel gets presented to people all the time, probably not as often as it should be, but it gets presented every day all over the world. In fact, just today, all around the world, Christian churches are meeting. The gospel is being preached. People are hearing the message of Jesus and the gospel is being presented. And guess what happens? You can have the exact same gospel message, right? Someone winsomely shares that gospel message, something like this. You know deep down that you are a sinner. And even if you don't, you should see the effects of sin in your life. You should see what the badness of your own heart is doing. Within you, there's selfishness. There's destructiveness. There's law breaking. There's, there's excuse making. There's guilt in your life. Jesus Christ came to die and rise again to save a sinner like me. And yes, a sinner like you. If you will but confess your sin and place your hope in Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you do that, you will be forgiven and you will have peace with God. It doesn't mean your life will be easy necessarily, but it will be joyful because you will see and savor the goodness of Jesus Christ even in your tribulations. Right? You, a message like that gets presented And guess what happens? You will have the same group of people and you will have a variety of answers. You'll have some people in the group that'll say, that's ridiculous. How can someone else bear your sins? Right? They they want to argue with what they hear. They're not willing. And you'll get some who will say, you know, I really like this idea. How does it fit into the things that I am already doing in my life and that I don't want to change? And then you'll find other people who hear the truth, they love what they hear, and they say, how can I know this forgiveness that you speak of? Right? And the same message, different ears. And, and you can't control it. The preacher can't control it. Um, you can't predict it. Uh, Jesus, in some ways, has been preaching enough and receiving enough response that, that he gives a parable right here that in a sense explains what people have seen so far, right? Jesus gets a widely varying response from people. Sometimes people have animosity. Oftentimes people are extremely willing. Other times people are curious, but they, but they don't want to stop what they're doing in their lives, right? Jesus has already seen all of these different responses. Is something wrong then with the message? Is there something wrong with the seed? Does the message need to be tweaked? Does it need to be tinkered with so that, so that the ground will be more receptive to it? Well, the answer is no, because the problem is not with the seed. The problem is with the soil. And so the heart on which Jesus' message lands is the problem. And, and in many cases, the heart that hears the gospel It's too hard to be willing to receive what God has in the ministry of Jesus. The idea is, I'm going to do this my way for one reason or another. And so let's just look at the differing factors that Jesus identifies in how his message gets received. 
And we're just going to use this, the, the, the theme of the soil, and we're just going to follow the theme of the soil here in this passage. First, we have the snatched ground. These are our four points today. The second is the shallow ground. Third is the strangled ground. And then fourth is the sensitive ground. This is a parable about hearing the word of God. Um, it's kind of meta, right? We use the word meta to describe something that's talking about itself or thinking about itself, uh, getting into our own head a little bit. Well, guess what? Depending on what your soil is like today may change how you receive what you hear today. So today is actually an opportunity for you to not only hear the word, but also to ask yourself, how am I receiving the word? Jesus says in Luke eight eighteen, take care how you hear. In other words, we may not be able to change the kind of soil that we are by sheer will, willpower. And yet Jesus says, we can do this. We can take care how we hear. We can take care how we hear. And so as you hear these different kinds of soil that Jesus talks about, one thing to do is this. Resist the urge to hear one of the soils and go, oh yeah, that's my cousin. That's my, that's my sister. She needs to hear this. Um, this, is, this is that guy that I know. This is that coworker that I have. Uh, I know exactly that type, that type over there. I've run into him before. Instead, you, you know what? Even if you identified what kind of soil the other people in your life are, what can you do about that? But one thing you can do is respond and ask the Lord, what kind of soil am I? Where am I at? So don't think of this as primarily a text about other people to help you fix folks. Instead, look at this as a text about us and how we hear the word of God. Um, And even if you're a Christian already, this parable still has something to say to us about the way that we should receive God's word and the way that we should share it with other people. And so there's a lot here, depending on where you are. There's a, there's a feast here. And the only downside is I'm a mortal. I'm not immortal. I am a mortal. And I can't change hearts. But we can look at what God has said here. So first, Jesus talks about the snatched ground. Look what he says in verse 4. He talks about it, and then he interprets it in verse 19. So it says, As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And then look at verse 19. He talks about this a little more. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So this is the word of God that isn't understood, right? Jesus isn't talking about someone who wants to understand but doesn't understand. He's he's not talking about an accidental ignorance here. Ignorance, not in the insulting way, but in the sense of it just doesn't get through. Um, Jesus is talking about the person who has willfully stopped up their ears or stopped up their heart, right? And Jesus gets a lot of this reception. Um, It's one thing to get a hearing from someone, but Jesus says that it's also the listener's responsibility to give a hearing, right? There's a such thing as getting a hearing, great, But that person also needs to give a hearing. You actually need both or you're not going to receive anything. Um, Jesus is talking about the person who who resists the truth of God and won't even hear it. One of the starkest examples of this is is Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, the preaching deacon. Um, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 gives this whirlwind tour of 
of the history of Israel and God's faithfulness to them. And then he points at the audience and he accuses them of, of uh, this, these people who end up murdering him. And the accusation that he gives is really sharp. I mean, it's a really sharp message that he has. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. I mean, there's a real test right there for what kind of a heart you have. If you can hear a message that hard and be either cut to the quick or hardened even more, right? That, I mean, if someone was to, to preach to you like that, And to call you stiff-necked and stubborn and accuse you of resisting the Holy Spirit. How would you respond? Would you respond with a soft, broken heart? I have been resisting the Holy Spirit. I have been resisting God. I have been in rebellion. Like, Would you admit that? Or would you instead flee to your excuses? Flee to your arguments. Flee to all the reasons why you think that you did this and why you were justified and why you're not wrong. Right? This, is, this, this response to Jesus here, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This is closer to what Jesus is talking about in this parable. The willfully resistant person who doesn't understand the gospel because they don't want the gospel. What do they want instead? Well, if the gospel is about confessing our sin and receiving and resting on Jesus Christ alone, then the person who resists that, whether they know it or not, what do they love? They love self and they find rest in him or herself. They, they, they say, I am good enough. I, I'm, I'm a good shelter. I'm a good shelter to flee to. I don't need that message of the gospel. I don't need that message of Jesus. Something about me is really, I'm different from everybody else. Like Everybody else is bad. Everybody else out there is nasty. But, but I'm the good guy in my story. I don't need a savior. What I need is to find the savior within myself. I need to find something within me that's good and glorious. And everyone else just needs to see that. They resist the idea of having anyone other than themselves as Savior. This is a person who wants to be known as a good person. They want to be known for their, their strength and their self-sufficiency, maybe their generosity. But what does that look like in practice? Well, resisting God shows up in a lot of ways. One way that resistance to the truth shows up is in excuse making. We are, we are excuse machines. We, we make excellent excuse makers. You know, even Christians in our, in our sinful flesh, we still uh, do battle against sin in our own lives. And so we still have vestiges of sin that we have to do battle with. Even, even Christians will find reasons to resist the knowledge of God. And sometimes the excuses are ridiculous even. You know, one of the ways we can do it, and, and it doesn't make sense, it's, it almost sounds unreal, but maybe you see it in your own heart. Maybe, you have, maybe you're experiencing it right now as you're sitting here. One of the ways we do this is by nitpicking a church where the truth is being held out to us week in and week out. What better way for us to resist God and resist the Holy Spirit than to make up petty reasons why we might not. I don't like the style of music. I don't like the decorations. I don't like the way that person prayed. I don't like the snacks. I don't like the bread or wine they used. I've heard better preachers, right? They don't have to be good reasons, but 
Our flesh is always searching, searching, searching for a reason not to give a hearing to the gospel. It will take anything that it can grab hold of, even if it's stupid, even if it's silly, even if it's petty. Because really all it needs to happen is we just need to miss it while it's happening and being given to us. Because if it can get past us, then our flesh wins. Even if you are a Christian, know this, there is a battle in your heart between your sinful nature and the new man that God is creating within you. This is why Paul complains in Romans 7 that he often follows his worst impulses, even though he wants to live and please God. He has these two dimensions to himself and his life. There's a battle going on. And when you hear God speak in your heart, your flesh will be searching for any excuse, any excuse, no matter how ridiculous, not to hear and believe the message of the gospel. Generally speaking, Jesus seems to be talking about people here who are totally resistant to his message, but just know there are vestiges, there are holdouts of that old man within each of us. And often our sin nature even still tries to find a way to resist God's word. And that resistance, as Jesus states it here, results in misunderstanding the gospel. So this lack of understanding, according to Jesus, becomes an opportunity for the evil one, Satan. If they don't understand it, then Satan snatches it away. Right? Who, hold, who holds on to something they don't understand? If you don't understand something, then after you hear it, you go, I didn't get that. And then you move on to something that you do like and you do understand and that you have a preference for. That's just the way that we are. Why grab hold of something that goes in one ear and out the other? You wouldn't even know what you're grabbing hold of. I wonder how many times has Satan snatched the word away from us on a Sunday afternoon or during the week or even as the sermon's being preached. How many times has that happened? You know, we hear the word and then it was snatched away. We, if we heard the word of God, we, we, we should chew on it. We should meditate on it. We should learn to become a better listener so that it doesn't get snatched away. One of the things we've tried to do, we've introduced this year, is that family worship guide you find in the back of your bulletin. Um, you know, I'm not going to just remind you of it just because I work on it each week and I hope that you'll use it. <laughs> Tr- truly... The reason it's there is so that you still have the sermon with you as you leave each week. So that you're chewing again on the message that you heard on Sunday. And so that towards the end of the week, you're chewing on the sermon you're going to hear next week. The hope is to give these a longer tale in our lives. To give the sermon a longer time to marinate in our souls. And sometimes the questions are better than others. Sometimes the discussion we have are better than others. But it's all an attempt to remind us each day of the week. What did we hear? What do we need to remember? Whatever it is that you do. And you don't have to do that. But whatever it is that you do. Take steps so that the word of God survives in your heart. And isn't snatched away as soon as it's finished. Second, look at this. Jesus speaks of the shallow ground. Let's just go right to verse 20 here. Uh, Jesus says this. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
So, so this is ground that has a shallow religious experience of, of one sort or another. Um, there are two dangers, at least when it comes to shallow religious experience. Let me see if you can identify with one of these. The, the first is the danger of only listening to God's word with your mind, with your intellect. Um, there's a danger in just giving intellectual assent, but never letting God's word convict you of sin. Right? Hearing an argument and agreeing with it, but it never drives you to your knees in prayer. Right? Just like the plant and the seed need to grow down deep into the soil, look what Jesus is saying. God's word is meant to be engaged in deeply in our hearts. It's not to be shallowly engaged with. Um, it's possible to come to church and the message doesn't penetrate. You, you can listen to sermons and, and it doesn't seek in. You can stay in Sunday school and, and learn things about the Bible, but it doesn't touch your soul. You could even read your Bible and be very interested in the history of these things and, and all the philosophical implications of, of the growth of the church and, and what it's done through world history. You can study all of those things and it could not touch your heart. I want to say a word to the kids. Everything I say in the sermon is meant to be heard by everyone in the church. Everything in the sermon is meant to be for kids. But I want to just direct something specifically to the kids of our church. Many of you go to a Christian school. Or you've perhaps, you're homeschooled, right? Well, um, many of you attend our Sunday school on Sundays. What a blessing it is. And if that's you, I want you to just reflect on this. What a blessing it is to go to a school where your teachers love the Lord and they're committed to teaching you and living the truth of God's word out and teaching you the Bible. That is a tremendous blessing. But I've had conversations with, with students before where I can sense something. I can sense that your Bible classes in school are a great blessing, but there's also a danger that the Bible can begin to look like a homework book. The Bible can start to look like a homework book. Oh, I have to read this chapter today. I have to memorize this today. I have to do this. And so you look at your Bible the same way I looked at my uh, calculus book in high school. <sighs> you know, I don't want that. I'd rather be playing Zelda, right? I do not want, I do not want that book. I pray that's not the case for any of you. I pray that, that for none of you, you look at your Bible and you see a textbook. But for some of you, you might open the Bible the way you open a Latin text or a history book that you're supposed to work through and you've got a deadline. When you open the Bible, I'm saying this to kids, but I'm telling you it's for all of us. When you open the Bible you may be in danger of treating it like a textbook. And what you need to do is something like this. Pray that God will help you to remember this is not a homework book. It is God's word and it is precious. And for much of church history, God's people yearned to have it and they couldn't. So in other words, remember what this book is. It is the very self-revelation of the creator of the universe. It is God protecting us from guesswork. It is God revealing his very heart of love in Christ. The rescue that he has for us in his son. Kids, will you pray? 
Will you, will you beg God, please let me see and savor your word. Make me to see that it is the greatest privilege in the world to be given something so good as this and told, read it, study it, memorize it. What an incredible gift, what an incredible privilege. It's like being given the greatest meal that ever existed and being told, for your homework today, please feast. Um. I hope for all of us that we see, whether we are students or whether we're adults or whether we're something in between, that we would realize what we have before us in God's Word. The reason I'm talking about this, by the way, is I am speaking from experience. Um, I went to seminary. Here's what seminary is. Seminary is is school for preachers. (laughs) It's school for preachers. What do you think preachers study in school for four years. We read the Bible. We read the Bible every day. We use it as our classroom book. It is where all of our classroom assignments come from with very few exceptions. We read the Bible and we get graded on how well we, how well we know the Bible and how well we can answer questions about the Bible. And so guess what we do? We sit and we memorize and we, we try our very best to commit as much of it is into our hearts and minds. And I had classmates that began to look at the Bible like a textbook. And, and I had times where I saw it that way too, especially when the end of the semester is coming around. So I, I know that especially if you are assigned the Bible for classes, that you will be tempted to see it as homework. Beg God that that would not happen. Beg him, please don't let me grow cold. Please let me see the greatness and glory of your son. Please let this word change me. Please don't let me grow weary. Make me love this word. Make me see and savor Jesus Christ here. Yes, it may be homework, but what a homework it is. Beg him. Pray pray to him. Even as you sit in class, beg him. Approach it. It's that serious. It's that important. But there is a danger that it never goes deeper than the intellect. There's a danger of that. Have you come to sense that not only that these things are true, but they, they personally apply to you? Have you come to see that the gospel isn't just for people, but the gospel is for you? Those are different things. Oh, you could sit and think, oh, the gospel is for people. People need the gospel. Other people that aren't me need the gospel. And yet it never dawns upon you that this is a message that I need. You hear a passage of scripture read that speaks of man's low condition and you think, do you think to yourself, that is me. I'm one of those pathetic sinners. I've got no hope except in Jesus. Has that occurred to you? The Bible is meant to touch our hearts, not just our heads. So that's the one danger. That's the danger of the the intellectualizing the Bible. But the other danger for Christians is the opposite error also. And it's the error of listening to God's word only with your emotions. Um, notice what Jesus says about this second kind of ground. You see it right here. It's, it's in the text. Uh, Jesus says that this kind of ground receives the word with what? With joy. It receives it with emotion. But then it's only emo- an emotion, right? Without truth anchoring our own heart response, all we have is sentimentality. The danger of being sappy or sentimental or nostalgic is a present danger for Christians too. 
See, the danger is that, that in our emotions, uh, the emotions exist for their own sake and they're not rooted in anything that's actually true. Uh, what are we doing in these, in these situations? We're seeking an experience of God, but we're not repenting of sin. Uh, we feel bad for our sin, perhaps, but we don't actually repent of it, right? That's a real danger. Uh, some people just feel so brokenhearted over their sin, but they don't do anything about it. They're just brokenhearted over their sin. They read the confession of sin, perhaps that assurance of pardon just bounces right off of them. It's a danger. And what happens in time is this. Eventually, if we become feelings focused and emotions focused and we do not have that element of truth that must be there, that initial feeling, that initial emotion starts to fade. What happens in the parable? It gets received with joy and that joy is not enough. Because eventually trouble comes. Eventually the thing that we built all of this on, that sensation or that sentiment, well, it doesn't persist And so instead of living for truth, we find ourselves easily blown over. Or to use Jesus' words here, there's no root. So when the trouble comes, we fall away. Why? Because Jesus was an instrument to grant an experience. The person wasn't entering into the kingdom. They were inviting him into their kingdom. And that's the danger for us too, that we seek an experience or a sensation that doesn't have those feelings and experiences rooted in the very real and true thing that doesn't change with situations or persecutions or trouble or sickness. And so one question to ask yourself is, maybe you're the shallow ground if you are obsessed with only the intellectual side of the faith or only with the emotional side of the faith. The reality is a robust faith has its roots down deep, And when the troubles come, it doesn't hinge on only one of those things. Third, Jesus speaks of the strangled ground. Look at verse 22. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So notice that for this person, Jesus says they they hear the word. It's, it's not like the first kind of soil where they're trying to avoid God. This seems like a person who knows this sort of thing must be important. And so they, they want to try to see if their life has room for God and, and see where God might fit in. Uh, a life where Jesus is sort of an accessory. He's, he's an accompaniment to the stuff that really matters to them. And so when you listen to God's word, you know, are you being confronted with whom your life is really supposed to be about? Are you are you being challenged with who goes in the center? Are are you hoping that there is a place for you and God to sort of fit together in a way that doesn't really dethrone you and doesn't correct you or require you to change anything and you can still stay king of your life? You still get to be the one who's in charge of your future, and yet you've got a little God in there to complete it. This seems to be what Jesus is talking about, right? The person who says, my work, my cares, my distractions all take first place over God. And eventually, if God plays second fiddle to everything else you do, of course, he will fall by the wayside. He only fits In one place in your life, he fits in the center. He is too huge and holy and glorious 
to sit on the sidelines of your life. God is not your wingman. He's not your co-pilot. If you have a God is my co-pilot bumper sticker, replace it with just pilot. Um, he does not sit in the co-pilot's chair. Right? Either He's either God or he's nothing. He's either God or he's not. But there's also a, a word here about the danger of distractions. You know, it's amazing to me Jesus says this in the first century. Because I imagined that our age is the only age of distractions, that everybody else before us were highly focused individuals who never wished that they could do something else. Uh, you know, I, but it turns out, no, even in the first century, the, the threat of distractions and things was alive and well. And yet we do live in an age of distraction. We live in an age of entertainment and, and amusement uh, with very few exceptions. If, if you don't have one of these in your pocket, I want to meet you. We carry around a little thing in our pocket that could own our lives if we had no self-control. Jesus talks about the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches that can choke the word. Each of us has only so many minutes in our day. And, and often the day goes by so much quicker than we ever guessed it would. And this is, part, this is partly an age thing, right? I'm now in my 40s. The days go by too fast. Uh, going to General Assembly in a couple of weeks. When I was a kid, two weeks would have, might as well have been two months. And now two weeks is it's just a snap of the fingers. And, and our days go by so quickly. And, and I'm afraid to say this, that a, a whole lifetime could go by where all of the things that truly mattered could become an afterthought because either our job or our amusements absorbed us and we lost touch with the things that mattered. We live in dangerous times where God's word, the seed in this parable, right? God's word can be easily choked out, easily choked out. In one sense, your job is to examine your life for the ways God's word is being choked out and ask this question. How can God's word have a clear path to my heart? How can I Eliminate those things that are keeping me from having the word take root and grow and become a hundredfold crop. What is in my life that is choking these things out that I may have some measure of control over? Fourth, and very briefly because we've really been speaking about this the whole time under the other points, um, but we have the sensitive ground. What does he say in verse 23? He He's drawing near the end of the parable and he says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. Remember what all this has been about. You are the soil. No matter who you are, you are being addressed under one of these headings today. Um, You are the soil. God is the sower. His word is the seed. And, and you know, I'm not sure which obstacles are, are in your heart that threaten to silence or drown out God's word or carry away God's word from your heart. Um, maybe you need to be moved beyond just emotional or just the intellectual. Maybe you're in danger of only seeing God's word as a task, like homework. Maybe you need to have God move himself to the highest place in your life. Maybe you need distractions and cares to be displaced by God, to be reminded that he's far more important than angry birds or whatever else is in your pocket. I don't know. 
I mean, I look out and I just think, I can think of a thousand different answers to those questions. I'm, I'm not sure what you need the gardener to do, but listen to this. Cry out to the gardener. Because your heart is, is a garden and, and God is, is there. He's got the expertise. He's got the skill. Think of, think, of, think of what this parable is. Think of who all the people in the parable are again. The lesson of Jesus here is not, you should get to work weeding your own garden. It's not, you should get to work pulling up all the rocks, pulling up all the weeds, pulling out all the thorns. Right. The, the lesson here is, you know, we want to identify things about our own heart. But at the end of the day, the message here is not get to work improving yourself. That's not the lesson. That's not the message. How do I know that? Because the self-righteous person repels the seeds and doesn't even need the gardener at all. Right. So who is the gardener? It must be God, not you. It must be God, not you. The sower is the gardener. The gardener is God. You see work that needs to be done in your heart. It's work that God must do. And that means you must pray. You must pray. Ask God, say, Lord, please help me to grow deeper. Help me, please till up my soul. Remove the rocks. Pull out my stubbornness. Pull out my self-righteousness. Put yourself in the place of prominence so the distractions of this life don't keep me from receiving the goodness of your word. Pray to him. You know, I I hope that you hear the really amazing, really dominant point that Jesus is making here today. You are the soil. His word is the seed. He is the gardener, right? Your job as the soil is to receive the seed. And and you don't even do anything to receive the seed. What What does the ground do When the seed gets thrown, it just sits there like this. (laughs) Double chin. (laughs) That's what the soil does. It just planks and the seed gets thrown at it and it takes root, right? It's so passive, so passive because God is the gardener. Your role is to receive, right? And so sticking with that gardening analogy just a little bit, what does Paul say about God's people as plants? He says, yes, we play a role in receiving God's word. We're we're meant to receive God's word. We receive it with our, our mind and our heart. But what makes our mind and our heart receptive? It's the work of God. So how do we get the, the seed given to us? Well, God's ministers are part of the way that God cares for our souls. But it's God that gives the growth. It's God that makes the growth happen. And, Your job is not to be the sower. So in the parable, think about this. You're not the sower. You're not the seed. You're not the gardener. You're not even the plant. You are just the lazy, flat soil sitting there and stuff is getting thrown on you and stuff is happening to you. Your job is to receive. Your job is to hear. Your job is to be cared for by the Lord and to let him take care of you. Let him remove your thorns. Let him remove your rocks. How can the thorns and rocks of our lives be removed? Hope you won't think this is too cheesy, but consider this. He bore thorns on his head for you. He was put to death on a rock for you, wasn't he? They placed a rock in front of the garden tomb. The gardener has taken your thorns and rocks so that you might become a garden. Let him take care of those things. Let the gardener 
work on your heart, by working his truth into your soul as he tills up the soil of your heart and shapes you more and more into a garden that will bear fruit for him. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are the gardener who sows the seed and cultivates your people. We need merely to receive your word. And, and even your word only touches our heart because you have prepared and tilled the soil. All of salvation is your work from, from you and through you and to you. Lord, you deserve all of the glory. Would you take us as your people and remove anything in our life that is keeping your word from changing us? Lord, for those in this room who have not yet put their trust in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would pull out the thorns, pull out the rocks, pull away, scare off the birds. Lord, anything that would keep people from hearing the gospel and believing, would you be at work uprooting it and changing it? Would you remove pride and stubbornness and self-sufficiency? Remove all of the things that keep us from becoming a reflection of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.